host, Rachel Zucker. I'm recording this introduction in Scarborough, Maine, where I am sheltering at home with my husband, my three sons, 20, 19, and 12, and my middle son's close friend, also 19. In the next week or so, Commonplace will release an episode that will include more extensive updates on where and how each member of the Commonplace team is. You'll hear from me in Maine, Doreen Wang in Taiwan, Christine LaRusso in Los Angeles, California, and Jay Hammond in Phoenix, Arizona. I'd like to invite all of you listening, all our Commonplace patrons and listeners, to check in with us by leaving a message. Are you well? Where are you? Who are you with? Are you an essential worker? How is that going? Are you able to work online? Have you lost your job? Are you reading and writing? Are you caring for children or other family members at home? What are you spending your time doing? How are you managing this experience? Are the challenges primarily material, physical, interpersonal, psychological, spiritual? What, if any moments of grace, have you experienced because of COVID-19? Have you found new practices or routines that help you? Do you or someone you know need help that another commonplace listener might be able to provide? You don't have to answer all these questions, but please do leave us a voice message at 347-762-3405. That's 347-762-3405. Email us an audio file or regular text at rachel at commonpodcast.com. Message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Our handle is at commonplacepod. Or leave us a message by clicking the big orange speak pipe button at the bottom of our homepage, commonpodcast.com. Listen, I really mean this. We may not be able to respond to everyone who checks in, but we'll try. And we might include your personal updates in an upcoming episode, a commonplace global roll call. We will post the phone number and other contact information on commonpodcast.com and on social media. Here at Commonplace, we are brainstorming ways to provide community for our listeners, remote, virtual, safe, but still intimate ways of talking and thinking together about art, social justice, health, and activism. Here at Commonplace, we are brainstorming ways to provide community for our listeners, remote, virtual, safe, but still intimate ways of talking and thinking together about art, social justice, health, and activism. For the time being, we will have to suspend face-to-face recordings, but we have other ideas, including some live-streaming, real-time discussion groups. We're going to do a trial run this Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time using our Instagram channel, and I will try to live-stream myself making challah based on a recipe and instructions I was given by Jerry Rake. I will post the ingredients and recipe on all our platforms by Wednesday of this week, so if you'd like to make challah along with me, please join in. We'll also be exploring remote recording options for upcoming episodes. 
If any of you has ideas about how Commonplace can keep you company during this very difficult time, please let us know. In the meantime, I deeply hope each of you is and continues to be safe and well. Okay, so I'm delighted to offer you this conversation recorded on March 3rd, 2020 in Harlem with glorious, genius, groundbreaking poet, novelist, short story writer, playwright, essayist, anti-racist activist, and former lawyer, M. Norbessi Phillip. Born on the island of Tobago and educated at the University of the West Indies and then University of Western Ontario, M. Norbessi Phillip went on to practice law in Toronto, Ontario for seven years before turning full-time to writing. Phillip is best known for her 1989 book of poetry, She Tries Her Tongue, Her Silence Softly Breaks, which was awarded the Casa de las Americas Prize as well as her most recent book of poetry, Zong, and her young adult novel, Harriet's Daughter. Philip has been awarded several honors, including fellowships and residencies from the Rockefeller, Guggenheim, and McDowell Foundations and the Toronto Council for the Arts. I recorded this conversation with Norbessi the morning after she received the 2020 Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature for her body of work. Despite these well-deserved honors, I believe Philip is one of the most under-recognized and under-read contemporary writers. Her works engage themes of race, place, gender, colonialism, and language itself. Her book, Zang, about the 18th century British court case regarding the murder by throwing overboard of 150 enslaved Africans, employs erasure and radical language experiments and has profoundly inspired many contemporary writers. Norbessi and I met in a beautiful apartment in Harlem while she was in town to receive her award. I had been up most of the night before, worried about my son, and fretting over the difficult decision to cancel my participation in the AWP 2020 conference. When I got to our meeting place, I confessed this to Norbessi, and we sat and talked, recorder off, about our children and about the lifelong difficulties of being mothers. Norbessi ate a bowl of fruit, and we talked about commonplace, how and why I started it, why I love making it, and Norbessi's desire to start her own podcast, which I strongly encouraged her to do. After about an hour, I turned on the recorder, and as you'll soon hear, we talk about Norbessi's acceptance speech for the Penn Nabokov Award, the radical hospitality of motherhood, writing and living and speaking in a language that is not the language of your ancestors, finding ways to break open the language in order to express what cannot be expressed in English, and so much more. Toward the end of our conversation, Norbessi reads her groundbreaking poem, Discourse on the Logic of Language, and a little bit later, she reads from the Ferrum section of Zong. Sometimes I cut a longer reading from the conversation and offer it as a patron extra, but this time I've left both readings in this episode because Norbessi's readings are extraordinary experiences I want to share with absolutely everyone. This leads me to something I've been wanting to mention for a long time, 
I love giving special access and treats to commonplace patrons and commonplace book club members. But I've always hated putting poetry, teaching assignments, or patron extras behind a paywall. If any of you want access to anything at Commonplace, but cannot afford to become a patron, please email me, and I will give you access to the thing you need. If you're able to make a small one-time donation to Commonplace or a donation of money or time to a mutual aid fund like the ones Mariama Kaba and AOC have been encouraging, well, that would be a wonderful recompense. In our next episode, we will talk more about mutual aid and solidarity, not charity. For this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to a short, very new piece of writing by Norbessie Philip about COVID-19. Some Commonplace book club members will receive Zong, and she tries her tongue, her silence softly breaks, both by Philip, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press. She, by Claire Harris, courtesy of Goose Lane. Middle Passages, by Kamau Brathwaite, courtesy of New Directions. Portia White by George Eliot Clark, courtesy of Nimbus Publishing, Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, courtesy of University of Chicago Press, No Pain Like This Body, a novel by Harold Sonny Ledoux, courtesy of House of Anansi, and The Castle of My Skin by George Lamming, courtesy of University of Michigan Press. You can find links to the people and texts Norbessie and I mention at commonpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode. Toward the end of our conversation, Norbessie talks about the artist's joyful responsibility of healing. And she asks if we can imagine something other than capitalism, if we can imagine other ways of being free. These thoughts seemed essential, crucial to me on March 3rd, when it was still unclear to most U.S. Americans and Canadians the extent to which COVID-19 was going to shut down our countries. Now, just a few weeks later, these questions and responsibilities seem even more urgent. We will talk more about COVID-19's effect on art, social justice, and community in our next episode. We will talk much more about COVID-19's effect on art, social justice, and community in our next episode. Until then, here's M. Norbessi Philip. We were supposed to record this in your hometown of Toronto, but then my son got sick, and um, I'm so grateful to you for making the time to meet with me. For listeners who maybe don't know, you're in town because you were awarded the Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature. I did hear your speech. Um, I recorded it, and I loved your speech last night. What was it like for you to get to receive this award? And I know you were out quite late at the party. <laughs> was it fun? The party was fun. It was a bit crowded. It's not, which is 
what you want. It mm-hmm. wasn't, it's not the kind of, um, I don't go to those events, you know, so it was very unusual for me. Um, but we made, you know, we made a space for ourselves and we, we actually closed up the place. They actually had to not throw <laughs> us out, but, you know, they were wiping up the tables and putting the things away. <laughs> so it's always nice when you can do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoyed the after party and the, the ceremony was lovely. Mm. It was just great to see writers recognizing each other. And mm-hmm. there's just so much good work out there and not enough time to read it all. So... In your acceptance speech, you mentioned um, Brathwaite with, Mm -hmm. you know, tremendous homage and Mm -hmm. appreciation, which I was so um, delighted to hear. And and I loved the refrain of I see you. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you would just start a little bit by by saying what I see you comes from and what it means and how how why it was an important refrain in your short acceptance Mm -hmm. speech. Well, I mean. It's something, as I said in this speech, it's something that I noticed myself I would do Mm. or say occasionally, I see you. Mm. Um, um, Of course, our parents would say it sometimes (laughs) when you were being naughty as a child. I see you. I see what you've just done. But in in many African cultures, like in the, uh, the one that I had researched uh, Saubona. I was there some years ago. Mm. Saubona means I see you. Mm. And it's I see you as in I see you, I acknowledge you, I value you mm-hmm. with all your flaws, your virtues, and your, your strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I see you. Uh, th- there's another phrase that I have used for years. I don't know why I started using it. Someone would say to me, how are you? You know, very standard. Mm. And I would say, I am. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why, the instinct. But then, interestingly enough, I found out that in Shauna culture, that's what they say when someone mm-hmm. says, how are you? You, you reply, I am. Mm. But that's such a powerful statement because it links to where the speech ended mm-hmm. about being, needing to be sufficient. Mm-hmm. That it should not be contingent, dependent, conditional on race, sexuality, gender, you know, orientation, ability, and so on. But we know that human cultures have done that and continue to do that. And, you know, if you're not, you know, of my group, then you are vermin, you are cockroaches, you know, we know, we know, we have that capacity which is frightening. And I think if there's any possibility that we can get to that place where being becomes sufficient, the simple I am, and what could that generate for us, you know? It was only recently that I came upon the idea to use that refrain because after I was told about the prize, I, you know, I, I was writing the speech in my head. <laughs> like I would come awake on the morning and, oh, I must say that, I must say mm. that. And then they told me two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a much longer speech? It was, um, by the time I actually started writing, when, when I first wrote it out, it was, yeah, it was about three times that length. Mm-hmm. And then I started cutting and editing. I like editing stuff because mm. you really... You really can get to the 
to the bone or something, you know, maybe the lawyer talking in me, <laughs> but it was only in the last day or so since I'd been in New York that, or maybe just before I came to New York, I was on a panel discussion in London, Ontario, and one of the panelists, African-American woman, Camila, um, uh, she talked about this very thing about I see you being a part of, Af a, a part of greetings in, um, in this particular African culture that she had been um, visiting. And um, I started thinking about it. And so it was sort of on the edges of my mind. But it really coalesced yesterday or the day before yesterday that that was how I wanted. I wanted this refrain of, see, of, of acknowledging people and saying, I see you, mm -hmm. I see what you've done for me. And yesterday morning I was walking along St. Nicholas Street, um, coming back from lunch, and I passed a woman. She was using a cane, and it was a lovely day yesterday, if you remember, mm -hmm. the sun was shining. And she looked at me as we walked by, and she said, hello, beautiful. Mm. And she just kept walking. And I thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. In that moment, I don't consider myself beautiful. That wasn't it. But it was just that we saw each other, because I was noticing her as well, you know. Um, but she, she acknowledged my presence and that we were passing each other on a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's all it takes, you know, to lift the spirit. I love that. Um, I want to, I want to come back to the things that you said, I see you, mm -hmm. I acknowledge you, um, country people. Um, but I want to uh, ask you about one other part of the acceptance speech. Um, you talked about motherhood as radical hospitality, mm -hmm. which was, um, such a gorgeous and surprising mm -hmm. phrase. And a lot of people in the audience laughed, mm -hmm. you know, in a nice way, but you also said, you know, this is something, uh, at one point for all of us, there Every was a woman one of us. and it made me think very much of Adrienne Rich's, um, mm. of woman born where she talks about motherhood as a unifying experience, Absolutely. not universal, but unifying. Absolutely. And I was hoping you could say more about the radical hospitality mm -hmm. of motherhood and the ways in what, like why why was that part import, so important to you to keep in this two-minute speech? Mm -hmm. Because, again, I, I would agree with Adrian, and um, I will send you the essay in which I explore this in some detail because um, I reference Hannah Arendt as mm -hmm. well. Um, but it was important to keep it in because the expression radical hospitality, it's not my own, I must, I think I read it somewhere, but I think it best sums up what, what that process is all about because the woman's body goes through these amazing changes to host a stranger, mm. essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and what should happen is that this, this, this um, new being is be, should be rejected, but through a whole series of physiological processes, the woman's body accommodates this growing being. And for me, where the metaphor really takes off is that she breathes for that being. Mm -hmm. And what I was interested in 
is do our bodies remember that? This act of profound generosity that created being. Now, I feel like I have to very quickly bring in, you know, situations in which women are doing that, but it has come out of horrendous trauma, Mm -hmm. rape, enslavement, um, pogroms, all those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. yes? Um, And the body takes over. The body does not, you know, life is indifferent, Mm -hmm. absolutely indifferent. So the body takes over, and whether this being was formed in love or in extreme hate, the body begins this this nourishing and nourishment. But I was really interested in trying to push that metaphor to to think about what does breathing, what might breathing for the other mean? Mm. And I feel I should also acknowledge here a a wonderful lecture by um, the poet Nate Mackey who talked about breath and and, and, um, sax, saxophone players. This is a lecture that was held at SUNY Buffalo I was a John Creeley, the inaugural lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and also linking it to um, the refrain, I can't breathe by... Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Garner. Eric Garner. Mm-hmm. And my, thought, my thoughts, of course, for me, of course, kind of move to, well, I want to see where women are in this. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So that that was what got me thinking about this and thinking that this astonishing act of somebody breathing for you, we all begin life in water or in liquid, and we need someone to breathe for us. So, So in an interesting way, what I talked about, the poets and scholars here in the U.S. inviting me to come... I think that was an act of them breathing for me mm-hmm. because I would have died in Canada. There's no, when I say died, as a poet, there was just no, no way uh, I could, um, and, and I'm not even talking about financial, um, financial support. Um, Canada has a pretty good granting system, but it's very much a crapshoot. Depends on who the jury, uh, what, who the jury is comprised of and, if your project strikes a note, what you're feeling, you know, and so on, and so how that translates into your project. But what I mean by would have died in the sense of getting back some acknowledgement that your work, I see you, that was it. Yeah. They were seeing the work and therefore me at a time when I was disappeared and therefore not seen in Canada. Yeah, you used the word disappeared writer in in your acceptance speech, but you also said, I see you, Canada. And I've read several um, places where you've said that you felt you could only do, you could only have written She Tries Her Tongue and Zong in Canada Mm -hmm. for some fascinating reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, so on the one hand, you, your work was not acknowledged and seen you know, and I think here too, for far too long, um, I, I, do you, can, do you, I can say what I remember of, of uh, hearing about why you felt um, you couldn't have written those books in either 
the United States, in part because of African-American culture, um, or in uh, England, England because of the Commonwealth, um, or had you stayed in Trinidad, Tobago, because the, the, the work is so much about um, disruption, um, destroying the language in order to use it. And I was hoping you could Mm -hmm. talk more about the way almost that felt to you to both feel like this is the only place I could have written this. And yet I am, I am, I'm going to die here, you know, as a writer. Yeah. 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 That's well put. Yes. I mean, I began to realize this several years ago. Um, the U.S. has a long history of writing by black people, African Americans, mm-hmm. starting with Phyllis Wheatley, mm-hmm. and it's a very powerful black culture. Um, and so, I think that if you're living here as a black person, coming uh, in my case, coming from the Caribbean, I came to North America when I was 21, so I was fully formed <laughs> long before that. But it means, I think, when you come into to certainly these powerful cultures, in this case, economically, culturally, and so on, even though we know uh, African-Americans um, are terribly discriminated against in many ways and so on, but, but the cult, you know, there's, again, this contradiction. It's a, it's a powerful, within, within that capitalist, consumerist type of economy, um, black expressions of culture still have a very significant role. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me when I looked at other writers from the Caribbean and so on, that you really have to, you have to fit in to some degree, you know, to be able to get, to have an audience here and so on. I mean, race and issues related to race are very powerful in this country, almost impossible to, to um, to step aside from, as a young man was saying to me last night. Not that you should step aside from them, but I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. If you want to to um, to look at something, um, the question we can put it as a question: Do we always have to look at it through the lens of it um, lens of race, mm-hmm. for instance? Uh, perhaps we do, but but it seemed to me that I felt that I would have to jettison certain aspects of being shaped and formed in the Caribbean, which was very vital, is, was, and is still very vital to me. And I can talk a bit more about that later. Same in England or in the United Kingdom. The weight of their culture, to my mind, I visited there many, many times, but I feel it, it's so enormous again it feels almost um, as if one would be extinguished. Although, again, the through the Commonwealth, which sort of grew out of Britain's empire, you have um, this new kind of literature. Again, it seemed to me it would be another another way. Now, in that case, not necessarily jettisoning the Caribbean, because at least lip service, maybe more than that, is paid to their writers from India, Africa. My young adult novel, Harriet's Daughter, Mm. was first published in England because Mm -hmm. I could get it published in Canada. I was told that the writing was very good, but that um, 
the race of the characters were a problem, <laughs> do you know? And I, I, I remember I did go into therapy after that. <laughs> That's probably the first time because I thought, well, if the writing isn't good, I could fix that. Mm-hmm. There's certain things you can fix in a novel. Right. <laughs> but I, I can't fix the... Well, also, that's what the book is about. That's what the book is about, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I told you I'm reading it out loud to my 12-year-old son, and we are very much enjoying it, although he's extremely upset about what's happening right now where we are. They've just, I don't want to spoil it for all the listeners, um, please read it, um, but they've just gotten to the point where the game is ended. Yes. And it, it, and he has, from the beginning, has has been, um, he's like, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. But one of the things um, that I read about the book was that it was required reading, mm-hmm. um, but not in Canada. No. Um, in, in the Caribbean. Yes. And I'm, of course, it, I mean, I think that's a fantastic choice. And the very thing that I assume made it required reading is the race of the characters exactly. and because the, the, combi- the yes. conversations around this. Yes, yes. Um, so what a, what a crazy-making position yeah. to be in. Yes, yeah. so, I mean, that was very, very stressful. And, um, but as, again, to come back to what I was saying, but Heinemann, mm-hmm. Heinemann had a series, there's a Heinemann African series, Heinemann Caribbean series, again, coming out of the empire and the Commonwealth. And, um, the good news is it's being republished, reissued, not next year, mm-hmm. new cover, mm-hmm. and they want to make it more trade as uh-huh. well as, um, linked to schools, because just to explain for your listeners, um, the reason why it's required reading, I don't want them to go away with the idea that it's a sort of, oh, a, right. a, you know, communist, uh, um, not to put down the communist um, sort of strategy. Um, the Caribbean still follows the English system mm-hmm. where you write exams when you are 16. It used to be uh, what's called the General Certificate of Education. And then you write another set of exams if you do well enough in those at 18. Mm. So it's the GCE O level, ordinary level, and the GCE A level, advanced level. That had been that has been changed for years now to the CXE, which is the Caribbean Examination Exams. I think it is CXE, um, CXE, and. Uh, all the subjects, you know, there's, there's syllabi and then you have the books attached. So with English literature, you would have certain books that were reading, um, required reading, mm-hmm. on which you would be tested. Mm-hmm. So it's in that sense that it was required reading for young people who were studying English literature at the um, ordinary level. Yeah, um, thank you for explaining that. And I also want to add to that as well, that you have, um, I don't know if it was in the same interview, but I've seen you write about the, the, I don't even know what the right word is, the lunacy, the inequality, the oppressiveness of, for example, having to be tested on Wordsworth's poem, The Daffodil, having never Mm -hmm. seen a daffodil. daffodil, And so the idea that it's required reading is definitely not because it's, you know, something people don't want to read at all. The fact that it was or is required reading is really a kind of a beautiful and necessary sign of, of including literature, um, 
that is no, you know, that is, a, is about the people who are reading it. Absolutely. Um, so it's very much, you know, mm-hmm. still in the English system, but, um, not like the daffodil. Yes. Because, uh, prior to independence, quote unquote, the required readings would have been the po- poetry of Wordsworth and, um, Shakespeare, of course, mm-hmm. and we had to write in a similar way exams on those mm-hmm. things. Not never having ever, 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 ever seen a daffodil. There were no books on the flora and fauna around us, the hibiscus, mm-hmm. the pui. I remember, I have a poem about this, which again, one of the many works that I have sitting waiting to be got back to. In March, April, the Puy are these tall, tall trees. And it's a hardwood tree, you know, like mahogany and so on. But every spring they blossom. Um, the one that I'm talking about blossomed yellow flowers. Mm. The pink ones are less um, frequent. And, and the blossoms dropped and there was this carpet of gold across which I remember walking Mm. so many mornings to school. Mm. Do you know, it was like somebody had just thrown this carpet out for me, but we had nothing Mm. about that, you know? We had to learn about wandering daffodils (laughs) and things like that. Do the the, um, Puya blossoms have a fragrance? No, they they don't Uh have a... Mm, there's no fragrance that I fragrance that I remember. Mm. It's just the color. Mm. Oh, yeah. They were just. It was just so beautiful. Mm. Do you know? And to see them in bloom, you know, it's also just magical. So there is. Um, so you know, this is a legacy that has has developed into something that's much that's necessary. We need to we need to see ourselves reflected back to us again. It's this I see you, and a colonial education did not see us. Mm-hmm. It just saw us as little widgets or cogs in this great machine that would produce things uh, for them. But I want to get back to your question. So we talked about the U.S. and we talked about um, England and why I felt I couldn't write there. In the Caribbean, it would have been very difficult. And you know, I wonder. Sometimes whether, you know, there's still, the oral tradition is very strong in the Caribbean, as it, as it should and must be. Um, writing, you know, it has grown a lot stronger. I would, I, you know, it would be, in, I am interested to see if it really fully develops. But I, I sometimes think about the fact that, you know, writing was used, I don't know if this was in the interview you talked you talked about, but writing and the role of writing was such a destructive one for mm-hmm. us. It contained laws, rules, regulations, that beginning said we were not beings, and then that constrained you and restricted you and constricted you. So I think it's a healthy response to have a distrust of writing. Yes. Many of those colonial laws are still on the books today. Like, I found out a couple of years ago that there's still legislation on the books that say the beating of drums is illegal. Do you know? Hmm. Um, and, and I grew up with a story, 
And I don't know, memory is such a weird thing. But I know the story. But the part where I say memory is such a strange thing, I don't know if an uncle of mine was actually, whether, whether that is actually my memory or if I'm making it up or if somebody <laughs> told me. I'll tell you the story. There is a book called Titalbe. I don't know how it's spelt, but Trinidad was once owned by the French, so it could be, well, T. Um, T is the short for tant, but in Creole it would be tanti, mm-hmm. T-A-N-T-E. So you, um, Derek Walcott has a, a play called Tijan, mm-hmm. T-I-J-E-A-N. Um, my grandmother was called T, Miss Mom. Mm-hmm. So she had three titles, T, Miss and Mom. So T is, is a part of the French Creole patois. Uh, Talbe, is it T-A-L-B-A-Y? Is it T-A-L-B-E? Accent aigu? I don't know. But this, but what I grew up with was this story called. There's this book called Titalbe, and you can only read to a certain part in that book. If you read beyond that, you will lose your mind and go wandering in the forests. Wow. Now here is where I, the question of memory comes up. I think I remember an uncle coming to visit us. He had a long beard, and they said that he had read beyond the book, and he was wandering in the forest. <laughs> Why he came out, I don't know. Uh-huh. But I've often thought about this, and I thought, what a what an interesting metaphor for a colonial society that distrusts writing mm-hmm. and perhaps understands, in a way, how writing can be injurious. In the sense that, yes, you you um, you can read and should read, but you ought not to go beyond a certain point because beyond that point what isn't it interesting you go back to the forest mm. what does that mean um but there's also another another saying too much book learning is not good for you mm-hmm. again this distrust of people who are maybe over educated and how no you know i think i i think what what people are responding to when they say those things it's really how those people were used in service of another mm-hmm. another project, the colonial project. In our household, of course, my father was a high school, a primary school principal. They were called headmasters. And, of course, book learning was very important. But, um, but those things are there. So what I'm saying is that I remember reading when I went back to Trinidad for a year, reading George Laming's Return of the Native Son. I mm. think that was it. But he talks about... Um, returning to the Caribbean and and feeling this sense of not quite fitting in as a writer. And um, I remember I was quite struck when I read it. This would have been about 25 years ago, and he had written it several years before that. I remember thinking, oh, but this is interesting because mm. I'm feeling that now as well. And when I go back, I go back every year, um, not for long periods of time, but I have a sense that there's still that sort of disjuncture mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the writer. It's like, who are you? You know, you're not a Calypsonian, you're not a, a hip-hop poet, you're not rap, you're not rapping and so on. So I think that traveling away from the Caribbean gave me a sense of perspective on what it was, the place was all about, what it meant to me. And I think it's interesting because I'm living also in 
a colonial society, mm. a deeply colonial and racist society. Mm-hmm. So I think all those things now in Canada, what I've said, I think you may have heard me say that writing by African descended people was not um, very, how shall I put it, um, plentiful Mm. at the time I began writing there. Claire Harris, Dion Brand was also beginning, well, she had been writing at that point. Um, a few others, but, but not many. There was a wonderful South Asian writer, Sunny Ladu. A wonderful book, No Pain Like This Body, mm. who was killed um, when he returned to Trinidad a couple of years after he wrote that. Um, Austin Clark was writing. Uh, those are all um, fiction writers. Um, uh, George Eliot Clark has has an argument that the um, preachers and the pastors from the Nova Scotia, Scotia area um, that their sermons were a form of literature, and therefore my argument that there wasn't there wasn't a tradition there is not a sound one. I think we're both on point in mm-hmm. terms of what we're saying. I think when I talk about literature, I'm talking about something that is more present in the general public. Mm-hmm. And certainly the sermons were not, still are not, even even in these um, in places like the US and so on. So while they existed, I, I think I see them more as... Uh, almost like archival resources. What I'm talking about is there's no visible literature Mm -hmm. that I could either say, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Um, Yes, I want to embrace that and mix it with this. It felt like there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. I have to be cautious when I say that because that's a trope that the colonial powers have used when they go into new territories. In Canada, there's nothing there. In Australia, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. The land is just there. It's un, unclaimed, therefore we can claim it. So, you know, I'm very careful about how I use that. I think another metaphor could be feeling a sense that I was working on the margins. And one of the meanings of margins is frontiers. I remember when I, when I, when I saw that, that's the name of the title of my first book of essays, Frontiers, mm-hmm. um, writings on racism and culture, and I th- like the frontier excited me again. But the frontier, the word is also a colonial word. Yeah. You know, the frontier is. But the aspect of it that I liked was that there's a sense in which you are somewhere, and behind you is the hinterland. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that really resonated with me. That there was some some aspect of what I felt I was doing felt like I was on the brink of something and that behind me, not that there was a past, but that there was something I was maybe, if not leaving behind, but turning my back on, mm-hmm. turning my back, my back on. I mean, the word brink feels so important, um, like, and all the kind of 
almost homonyms to it. Like in Brink, I hear break and, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, you're talking about the distrust of writing because of all of these rules and the way it was used injuriously in, in your amazing essay, the absence of writing or how I became a spy. Um, you speak so, you know, beautifully about writing or the absence of writing or the near absence of writing in the Caribbean. And then it's not just the distrust of writing, but how do you write without language? And you say, Language was one of the most important sites of struggle between the old world and the new world. The outcome of this struggle was the almost absolute destruction and obliteration of African languages. Together with the accompanying act of renaming by the European, this was one of the most devastating and successful acts of aggression carried out by one people Mm. against another. African musical art forms probably owe their survival and persistence to the fact that they were essentially nonverbal. So mm. that's another, Absolutely. you know, important um, thing to 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 you know remember if we think about why there isn't or why there wasn't when you started writing a you know beautiful explosion and plethora of uh, writing, specifically writing, mm-hmm. um, by writers of African descent um, in the Caribbean. And, and you know, I think that this, this, that is at the heart of what makes you and, and your work revolutionary. It's that brink. It's that, you know, and I, do, and I feel like the image of you with the hinterland behind you um, and a frontier and even the fact that the word frontier is so problematic, Absolutely. but it's all you have. Yeah. You know, that is at the heart yeah, of yeah. how do you, you know, how do you write in the language of the colonizer, of the oppressor? How do you not write? How do you uh, speak? How do you not speak? How, what, how do you reclaim your voice and how do you... B- speak in the language that is that is your language but that is not the language of your ancestors i mean i have so i have so many different ways i want to start talking about that because i think that's at the at the heart you know as i hear you talk i I, yeah the tears come to my eyes because um yeah it's uh it continues to be an issue for me i was sitting i was telling someone last night i was sitting in the airport on friday night and the flight had been delayed and (laughs) snow in canada and there was a, a family next sitting next to us um i think it was hindi that they were speaking although at times i thought nah not sure but it you know was a language other than english and there was i don't know why it was um, so it was it looked, looked like a mother and a couple of sons and a daughter or daughter-in-law. I don't know who, but three or four of them and a little child. There was a moment when I had this sense that it was almost as if my tongue was longing to taste hmm. something, like in hearing them talk. It was almost like it was a food (laughs) and like my tongue was smelling the food and not that I wanted to speak that language, but it had a memory of something other. Mm -hmm. It was very poignant, very 
It just, I, as I said, it just came on. Um, it's a grief. What can you say? Mm-hmm. It'll be a grief forever. I think what we've done, I mean, and Kamau Brathwaite and I will not remember the quote here, um, but I used it the other day too, where he talked about, he um, said that language, in language there, there was, um, language became a place of resistance mm-hmm. against the colonizer. So I think we were both saying the same thing. And I think he's very, very right, because what I was about to say is that out of this catastrophe, we fashioned something. You know, he talks about, um, we don't speak in iambic pentameters, our speech is like a machine gun. And even here in the U.S., you hear that sometimes. When I listen to Chris Rock speak, mm-hmm. you can actually... Like, you can hear those, some of those rhythms, even, even in the spoken, spoken voice. But, see, we didn't have to prove ourselves in music. Mm. Do you know? And maybe that allowed a space for our music to... To do what it to do what it does and has always done to create to to move off and be avant-garde and and so on. But we had to prove ourselves as human through language to the colonizer. So, like one of the great ironies I've been laughing about this recently is not well laughing in a in a sad way. For your Academy Awards, there was a movie called Lion Lionheart, which was a Nigerian movie that couldn't get nominated because it was in English. Hmm. In the, it couldn't get nominated in the foreign language. And I thought, okay, let me parse this. So you, this country has been colonized. A foreign language has been imposed on it. Mm-hmm. And now they have made a movie in that foreign language. Which is their language. Which is now their language as well. Right. And you say that it cannot qualify because <laughs> it is not a foreign language. Well, anyway, right, you right. know, it's the grand irrationality of these systems, you know. Um, so what do we do with this? Like Ngugi Wationgo, who's a Kenyan writer who talked about, years ago he decided he would start, he would write his books in Kikuyu, which is one of the languages of Kenya, and they get translated into English. Um, and I think... I remember we were all so excited by that. He's the only continental African writer that I know who has done that. Um, but he also talks about the need for um, for us to to um, to learn an, to learn an African language or to to. Um, but then, you know, in, in an essay I wrote recently, there's an anthology on Ngugi coming out, and I wrote a piece in response um, to his work. You know, in a way, asking him, it was like an open letter mm-hmm. to Ngugi. What language do I mm. do I choose? Like, what what is my mother tongue? Yes. Where am I going to find that? And and you talk about translation. I was telling someone last night there is a an incident I read off in a translation journal. It had to do with the Malinke people. Mm who were colonized by the French. And 
someone says to the French consul or whoever, he says, um, this is our word for what happened to us. I will not remember, I don't know how to pronounce the word. I believe the spelling is something M-O-N-N-E-W. But this is our word for what happened to us. Hmm. What is the equivalent in French for that word? Hmm. Because if you don't have that word, then you don't know what you've done to us. It's moments like that that I think that, you know, in a way it's the impossibility of translation and the possibility of power or the impossibility of power to understand. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Um, when I go to Africa and I hear people speaking, that's when I realize the loss mm. because culture follows language. And that's why that mother in She Tries Her Tongue in Discourse is blowing words into her daughter's mouth. Again, it's breath. It's like she was continuing to breathe and send breath with words into her daughter's mouth and all their mothers before. And so I think for me the challenge was to find... It's not that it was I was conscious of it, but I think the work has been driving me to find another language to express what cannot be expressed in English. Mm -hmm. I think the closest I've come to it is in Ferrum, in Zong, because when I speak those broken syllables, when I speak them, I hear another language underneath floating. I was very conscious when I, when I was typing it up. I could, I could hear this other language underneath the English. Mm. And then that, that's, you know, it's in that interface that I, I find something almost transcendental happens. How is it? Or maybe, you know, maybe it is that you have to break open the language for those of us who don't have truly a mother tongue. Your work embodies within it, on the page, the necessity or the performativity of the work in ways that, that to some small extent, I believe all poems do, but with yours, it's so present. And they create for the reader an impossibility of, of reading just with your eyes, just on the text. Uh, just on the page. And so that's, you know, to, ha to, to give listeners an example of what we mean by that seems critical. So are you willing to um, read some or part or all of discourse? Um, what, what feels best to you right now? Um, so I'm, I'm really easy. I could... Um... Well, if, if you're willing, will you read discourse yeah. and then read from Zong? Sure. Okay, wonderful. Discourse on the Logic of Language English is my mother tongue. A mother tongue is not a foreign land, land, lang, language, languish, anguish, a foreign anguish. English is my father tongue. A father tongue is a foreign language. Therefore, English is a foreign language not a mother tongue. 
What is my mother tongue, my mammy tongue, my mummy tongue, my momsy tongue, my mode tongue, my ma tongue? I have no mother tongue, no mother to tongue, no tongue to mother to mother tongue me. I must therefore be tongue, dumb, dumb, tongue, dub, tongue, dam, dumb, tongue. But I have a dumb tongue, tongue, dumb, father tongue, and English is my mother tongue, is my father tongue, is a foreign land, land, lang, language, languish, anguish, a foreign anguish is English, another tongue, my mother, mammy, mummy, modere, mater, maser, modere, tongue, mother tongue, tongue, mother, tongue, me, mother, tongue, me, mother, me, touch me with the tongue of your land, land, lang, language, languish, anguish, English is a foreign anguish. When it was born, the mother held her newborn child close. She began then to lick it all over. The child whimpered a little. But as the mother's tongue moved faster and stronger over its body, it grew silent. The mother turning it this way and that under her tongue until she had tongued it clean of the creamy white substance covering its body. The mother then put her fingers into her child's mouth, gently forcing it open. She touches her tongue to the child's tongue, and holding the tiny mouth open, she blows into it, hard. She was blowing words, her words, her mother's words, those of her mother's mother, and all their mothers before, into her daughter's mouth. Edict 1. Every owner of slaves shall, wherever possible, ensure that his slaves belong to as many ethno-linguistic groups as possible. If they cannot speak to each other, they cannot then foment rebellion and revolution. Those parts of the brain chiefly responsible for speech are named after two learned 19th century doctors, the eponymous doctors Wernicke and Broker, respectively. Dr. Broker believed the size of the brain determined intelligence. He devoted much of his time to proving that white males of the Caucasian race had larger brains than, and were therefore superior to, women, blacks, and other peoples of color. Understanding and recognition of the spoken word takes place in Wernicke's area, the left temporal lobe situated next to the auditory cortex. From there, relevant information passes to Broca's area, situated in the left frontal cortex, which then forms the response and passes it on to the motor cortex. The motor cortex controls the muscles of speech. Edict 2. Every slave caught speaking his native language shall be severely punished. Where necessary, removal of the tongue is recommended. The offending organ, when removed, should be hung on high in a central place so that all may see and tremble. 
a tapering, blunt-tipped, muscular, soft, and fleshy organ describes A, the penis, B, the tongue, C, neither of the above, D, both of the above. In man, the tongue is A, the principal organ of taste, B, the principal organ of articulate speech, C, the principal organ of oppression and exploitation, D, all of the above. The tongue, A, is an interwoven bundle of striated muscle running in three planes. B, is fixed to the jawbone. C, has an outer covering of a mucous membrane covered with papillae. D, contains 10,000 taste buds, none of which is sensitive to the taste of foreign words. Air is forced out of the lungs, up the throat, to the larynx, where it causes the vocal cords to vibrate and create sound. The metamorphosis from sound to intelligible word requires A, the lip, tongue, and jaw all working together. B, a mother tongue. C, the overseer's whip. D, all of the above or none. English is my mother tongue. A mother tongue is not a foreign land, land, lang, language, languish, anguish, a foreign anguish. English is my father tongue. A father tongue is a foreign language, therefore English is a foreign language, not a mother tongue. What is my mother tongue? My mommy tongue, my mummy tongue, my momsy tongue, my mode tongue, my ma tongue. I have no mother tongue, no mother to tongue, no tongue to mother, to mother tongue me. I must therefore be tongue, dumb, dumb tongue, dub tongued, damn dumb tongue. But I have a dumb tongue, tongue dumb, father tongue, and English is my mother tongue, is my father tongue, is a foreign lan, lan, lang, language, languish, anguish, a foreign anguish is English, another tongue, my mother, mammy, mummy, moder, mater, meser, moder, tongue, mother tongue. Tongue, mother, tongue me, mother, tongue me, mother me, touch me with the tongue of your lan, lan, lang, language, languish, anguish. English is a foreign anguish. Thank you so much for reading it. Um, I feel like so, I mean, it feels like a sacred text in the sense that so many of the things that we're talking about are there. And um, for to help uh, listeners visualize a little bit, the language is laid out on the page in various directions, not um, in the conventional, traditional, normalized, uh, mainstream way that language is you know, normally laid out in a book. And, and that creates... Um, an impossibility in a way of reading that's very intentional. And when, when I've taught your work on the undergraduate level, there's a lot of resistance initially, mm -hmm. um, a lot of complaining. Uh, 
Why is it so difficult? <laughs> Why is she doing this to us? Um, and uh, when I teach it on the graduate level, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I feel a bit sad that, that we're, we spend a lot of time talking about, like, yes, that's intentional, that impossibility, that difficulty. Why? 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 Um, what does it mean to each of you that you are writing in English? What does it mean to, you know, to, you know, and, and, and that is extraordinarily important conversation Mm -hmm. that informs every conversation that we have about all the other texts. The conceptual understanding and conversation is essential to our project of thinking about what it means to read and write um, and make art. Mm-hmm. But I, I, with the graduate students, I already, you know, start there and then and we get can, to, yeah. to move on. Um, but to just go back for a minute, I mean, you know, the mother tongue, um, and this piece in she tries her tongue is, is there's so many things happening at the same time, both in terms of, uh, language, mm-hmm. um, the devastating grief of having, um, lost African languages of having to speak in the colonizer's tongue of wanting to destroy the lyric voice, mm-hmm. um, of language as both a site of healing and resistance and oppression and, and deep, you know, never healing injury and wound. And then also to come back to the radical hospitality of motherhood that we were talking about Mm -hmm. in the the beginning. This is also from the Lemon Hound um, interview, which was in blank, Mm -hmm. um, your book of essays and interviews. So you say, um, what I want you to do is hold the image of the woman's body, the black woman's body, as central to all that is happening in the Caribbean. Because when we think of the Caribbean, we have to think of cut, as in wound, and cunt, into which Columbus, emissary of the old world, would penetrate on behalf of his master. Mm -hmm. You could call it a surrogate fuck, or a fuck by proxy, because the raping and pillaging would truly begin in the English-speaking world with the robber barons like Hawkins and Drake Mm -hmm. and others of their ilk wreaking havoc on the virginal space in rabid search of redemption, utopia, and riches, Mm -hmm. whatever the Anglo version of the fabled El Dorado was, while bringing death, disease, and pestilence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, earlier you spoke about the fact that, yes, not all radical hospitality of motherhood is is wanted is desired, is yeah. desired but then also you know and I, it was very interesting because the interviewer said to you um isn't this a very gendered uh description of colonialism <laughs> and you said yes <laughs> very unapologetically i loved that moment there was there was some tension in that interview that i perceived um, who was the interviewer you know it's so interesting because it doesn't say oh, okay it's it's um the interviewer is just listed as me a the initials and i thought that was very interesting so you don't know who is asking you these questions mm-hmm. um, about postmodernism, about language mm-hmm. poetry, about the gender nature. But, you know, I think that it's not just, uh, of course, only that um, not all um, pregnancy, childbearing, um, child rearing is desired on the individual level, but 
that you're using, I think, very resonantly and aptly, um, rape mm-hmm. um, and this uh, as the site uh, and the woman's body, the black mm-hmm. woman's body, mm-hmm. as not just a metaphor but mm-hmm. a way of uh, as, mm-hmm. as a central image of colonization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to to then be a person who wants to needs to um, is compelled, called to use language, but what language, mm-hmm. in what form, mm-hmm. to whom, mm-hmm. for whom, mm-hmm. out of whom, mm-hmm. um, out of the mother's body, um, which has been both desecrated mm-hmm. and, um, sanctified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is, this is the beginning of the conversation of why is she doing this to us? It's too difficult to read, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mean to, um, speak ill of my students. No, no, no. It no. Is, we understand. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, it mm-hmm. it is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah, and absolutely. I and I think that that's um, that's the there's no good reason that your work was not acknowledged for as long as it was. Mm-hmm. But that might be the only almost mm-hmm. understandable reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I'm wondering. This, that, that did not include any question. <laughs> but it's okay. So, so can I pick up on a couple please, of things you said? Um, as you, you know, I haven't read this poem in ages. Um, but something you've said a couple of times, when this issue was coming out, of course, I had to go back over the whole, the, the book. And also, I don't know if you know the word, Looking for Livingston, you know that one? No. Looking for Livingston began as the last poem in this book. Interesting. Because I felt that after working with language in this micro fashion, um, I was suddenly confronted with this idea of silence and what does silence mean and does it always mean something negative. And so that book was also being reissued. And very quickly the story, quote-unquote, there is... There's a woman, it's the same project because it began as the last book, traveling through time. She travels for 8 billion years, the age of the universe. Mm. She's unnamed. She's just called the traveler. And she um, goes to different groups through the continent of Africa, but it's sort of unnamed. You know, mm. she's just traveling. So it's it's sort of working with the tropes of the adventurer. And then she begins to realize that she's actually looking for David Livingston. Um, all the, the, the communities, tribes, groups she goes to, their names are anagrams of silence. Huh. So she goes to the Eknelis, the Lenseki, the Nilis. Um, and she's challenged, like at each group, each place she meets, she's given a challenge, and then eventually she meets Livingston, um, the sort of source of her silence or silencing. She comes upon the Museum of Silence, which contains all the words, the world's silences, except for the Cecilians, who never let their silence be taken to the museum. So it's really sort of trying to overturn that colonial trope mm. um, and working with letters, you know, their letters and dreams and things like that. And um, when I read, reread both these books, I realized that everything in Zong was laid down in these two books. Mm. And you talked about that. You mentioned that yeah. about this one. So if you have a chance, you should have a look at it. It's a short book, but Wonderful. actually I think it's my fave. 
<laughs> if yeah. I have a fave. One never has a fave with one's children, <laughs> right? But, but it, yeah, so the traveler, you know, she meets different women along, along the way and, and has these challenges to meet. But everything, the, the, the working with language and so on, the, the, these are the kind of like the, the skeleton, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. but they're also in, in fleshed. And when you talked about the way it's laid out in terms of our audience, so, so there's a really, I think, important idea to maybe share with the audience, which is that the woman's story, where she's blowing words into her daughter's mouth, is the only positive thing happening in that poem. Mm-hmm. But you have to turn the book to read it because it's, it runs down the side of the left pages so you have to turn the book. And there were a couple of occasions when journals wanted to publish the poem and turned it the quote-unquote right way up. Mm. And it was, of course, I resisted. And they said, oh, we can't do it typographically. Yeah, wasn't, that wasn't the reason. <laughs> <laughs> but what it, what it showed me, and this is something that I was talking about last night to some younger writers, is that the work always ends up teaching me things as well. Because you never can really know everything that you're doing as an artist. I think you know that as a poet. You know, it's like you may have a few ideas you're working with, but then there are other things bubbling all around that you're not really aware of. As I, would, as I turned the book around, I realized, I thought, oh, that's it. So you have to make an effort to read the woman's story. Mm-hmm. When you make that effort and turn the book around, everything else becomes unreadable Mm. for the moment. It doesn't disappear, but it's unreadable when you turn the book back around the right way, which is the right way, right? by the way, (laughs) which is the right way. Because the right way, we are fully embraced by this poison and this patriarchal, European foundational system mm-hmm. and the woman's story becomes almost in that place it becomes unreadable in a sacred space mm-hmm. that requires an effort to read so I think that's really important for the for the um, for our listeners to understand and then the multiple choice questions they were a commentary on the, this exam system, mm-hmm. you know, that determined the rest of your life. And even today, it still does. And, you know, we have parents, you know, committing crimes to get their children into schools, that, right. you know, and so on. So those are things we have to think about. But the other thing I thought about when you were talking, as you talked about the interview and um, radical hospitality and so on, I was thinking... So perhaps what it is is that the organizing principle of white supremacy, colonialism, is exploitation, rape of the woman's body, slash earth, versus the organizing principle of radical hospitality, where we breathe for each other, Mm. as the woman has breathed. Mm for each and every one of us mm. on earth today. Yes. I think that is I think that is the struggle that we're in. 
at this moment. I can't help but ask, do you feel optimistic or oh, pessimistic I... <laughs> that we're going to end up on the right end of that? I mean, I think all human life depends on it. All human life depends on it, absolutely. But I think last night I was asking, and I was talking to this young man, um, we're talking about trauma and healing and the role of poetry. Because when I, when I left practicing law, I remember thinking, is it really important for you know, those communities who have not been afforded opportunities and so on, black communities, Asians, people of color, the indigenous, we have to move into law and all the professions and so on. You know? um, it's very important. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how happy I feel when I, when I find a black doctor. Mm -hmm. Do you know, it's rare. Um, not that I have had wonderful um, white doctors. But, you know, and sometimes when cultural things come up, you know, you, you want to be able... But it's just that I think it's important because all society benefits from this. But I was... I believe then, and I believe even more strongly now, that the people who have... What's the word I'm looking for? Whose responsibility, whose... It's responsibility, but it's also sometimes a joy, a joyful responsibility whose um, work it is, in the loveliest sense of the word, to heal us are going to be our artists. Mm. The griots, the poets, the dancers, the visual artists. That's our work. That's what I believe when I walked out of law, that yes, law is important. You know, we need people to get in there and analyze these legis these statutes and so on that bedevil us, and mm -hmm. particularly in our community. But we also need the healers, mm -hmm. um, particularly as societies have become, we live in modern societies and some of the ancient healing practices uh, look down on whatever. But I think, I think we are the new healers mm -hmm. and... So to, in terms of your question, I was asking him, because I've been sort of thinking about this, you know, what might it look like? Yeah. What, what is it going to look like? Will we be able to recognize it when we see it? Mm. Is it here? One, 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 one person said, I think it's here already. Mm. And she said, oh, I mean, it has always been here. So to, I think... It may not be that, the, like the question might not be which of these is going to win. Mm -hmm. Maybe what our work is to imagine, to conceive of what it might look like. I don't know because, you know, in, in, our, commun in our artistic communities, we talk about Afrofuturism and so on. I, I'm not sure I understand that. I mean, yes, I understand it, but I'm not quite sure what it really means in terms of shifting these systems or, um, you know, people talk about, you know, freedom. Yes, we understand a kind of freedom, but is that the only kind of freedom we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Do we want, is it that we want this system continuing in the way it has 
but we have a diverse group of people doing it? I don't think so. But right. at the same time, this is the system we have, so we have to sort of enter it. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. But, but those are some of the some of the conundrums. I, I asked this indigenous friend of mine the other day, I said, do you think this is inevit- was inevitable? Mm-hmm. And she said, um, yes, it was inevitable as long as you have capitalism. Mm. Okay, so then my question then is, can we imagine something other than capitalism? And I'm not talking about socialism, you know? Again, that's that binary, Mm -hmm. either this or that. I'm just trying to think as artists, as poets, what might the new, I mean, I don't want this maybe, what might the new Jerusalem that, you know, just to use that poetic metaphor, what is it we're, we're longing for? I mean, one little example for me would be that woman on the street yesterday saying, I see, you know, like, hi, beautiful. Uh-huh. And we just keep walking, you know. But can we, can we scale up from that? Right, because not only is language the only thing we have, but, but absolutely part of the problem, so is imagination. Yeah. And... Absolutely. How, how do we imagine something that we haven't had the language for, that we haven't had the model for? Exactly. And Rachel, I was thinking, I made a note here, brain broker, because as I was reading it, mm. as you say, just think, these men live in us. Mm-hmm. They named our, they our, named our brains are named after yes. people who believed in our inherent, we as women, me as a black woman, after our inherent inferiority. Mm-hmm. So the challenge of trying to Im- think our way out of that, it just like, like my brain is just going like, right. do you know? Yes. I'm making a gesture with my hands, my brain. And I'm just sitting here with my eyes like, why? Vibrate. So yeah. your question is very real. Like, yeah. how do we... And, and this, is, this, is, this is where I see the role of the poet being so important, you know, is in trying to push the boundaries of language and just to get us to, to sort of see how, how it constrains us and constricts us and this thing that's always being used to sell us stuff we don't want mm-hmm. and to fool us, you know. Now we have to use it in a way I tell people that I mentor and so on. We have to put it through some process that when you and I read it, you know, there is we can nod and say, yes, I hear this. Mm-hmm. I see this. I see you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I mean, I can't answer. I mean, right now it looks, it looks grim. Very grim. Yeah. But I think if we can hold on to the imagination and and just trying to... Do you know, it's like we talk of freedom, and one of the things I've always said is that we have Emancipation Day celebrations, yes? But that celebrates the legal emancipation. And I've always felt that... That's important. But surely we understood the people who ran, 
the people who, like in Beloved, killed their children, mm -hmm. the people who jumped overboard, surely they understood something that you cannot make of a human being a thing. That mm. they understood another way of being free. Yeah. So I think that is what we called upon now to do is can we imagine other ways of being free when we live in this universe that apparently gives us in this these societies give us everything you know 24/7 mm -hmm. porn 24/7 images and war and all this stuff you know can we do it can we do it i mean maybe maybe we should end with that mm -hmm. um would you be willing to read just a little bit from Zong and and then I, I mean, always love this this conversation in the most beautiful way was not what I expected. It was the shape of it, oh, really? and I'm so grateful, you know, for the shape that it that it took. Thank you. I hope it yeah. worked for you. Oh my gosh, deeply. Thank you. So let's see where I have underlined here. So ferrum is the last section of, um, well, it's the penultimate section because the last, maybe not just the penultimate section, <laughs> well, in terms of the poetry, um, because the last section is called Ebora, which means underwater spirits. A ferrum comes just before that. It's the most difficult section to read. Um, and this section, I'm. What happens in Ferrum is that the words words become splintered, they become fragmented, phonemes um, into phonemes and sound, um, and um, you'll hear how how it works, and and so when one is reading, you're always being presented with this choice, which gets back to what we're talking about here. Do we read for meaning? in the sense that we understand meaning? Or are we reading each, are we seeing each fragment, each splinter, small as it may be? Are we seeing each of those and allowing for the meaning to come through that? And that may echo the, the question we ended the interview with. Um, Ferrum means iron, and um, I was referencing the use of, um, it means iron in Latin, and I was referencing the use of Latin in law, but also iron, Ogun is a West African uh, god or deity, the name is Orishas, the different Orishas, and Ogun's metal is iron. Um, It's hard to know where to begin. <laughs> it's a sh okay. D to the mass. Toy slid. E on a tide of pro. Fit to murder. R -r 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 rob them all. I'll dick. Yate, she spins at. Up drops. Up drops. Up drops. Aston. E into the day, epico, mes bonte, amoteam, oh, 
on Lee Yo Us but now he has my me and in day as he deals ta he cards we sigh trapped who wa ill win her the fi raise hot get the to ungs and the i row ungs she i his now the sun go as round as eve ro how low mm had they la in their sk in on fi ray rubs this kin with o rub the skin with o rub the skin with oil ray rub the skin with o il wal e and shade ha they won go atagbo rub the skin with oil wale and shade have one goat agbo the oba sobs ag in an a gain the oba so bzo ye ye o ye ye o ye ye lantico o ye ye o ye ye o mio 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 we bear un ebora o mio o mio Omi o ju, omi o ju, ye ye lantico, omi omi o, omi o o Aro run o ye ye o ye ye o ye ye o lantico caribe o omi o omi ero o ye ye o mabo me abo o mi ebora ye ye lan tico caribe o esho ala omi o odo o faun sho caribe esho omi la Lantico, Lantico, oh ye ye o, ob abuama, e o ye ye ob, omio 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 mu, abo waba, o ye ye o, ma abu o, iseni iseni, omiara, abdudini, omio kun, o ye ye o, o ye ye o. Oh ye ye o, oh ye ye o, oh ye ye o, oh ye ye o. From omi, ye we be, ebora kiash, essensa, ut for the bow, dies of kin under. We be ebora, aki, 
ashes and salt for the bodies of kin under the skin of sea where repose the bone souls of kin. Can you not hear Sabvoshe, the voices? Audi of kin, Audi in the wind, part water, part bone, part salt. La Salle, La Salle, Salis in La Sang, salt in the eye, salt in the hair, salt under the nails, salt in the ears, salt in the nose, salt on the skin, salt under the skin of the sea, bonnet, salt. You've been listening to episode 84 of Commonplace with M. Norbessi Phillip. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was sound edited by Jay Hammond and produced by me, Jay Hammond, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Wesleyan University Press, Goose Lane, New Directions, Nimbus Publishing, University of Chicago Press, House of Anansi, and University of Michigan Press. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And to all of you who send us encouraging messages. Enormous gratitude to Omain Gruich and Justin Todd Smith for transcribing this and other episodes. If you are a student able to get course credit for transcribing one of our episodes, please contact us. The music you're hearing was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. And don't forget to call or message us for our upcoming Commonplace Global Roll Call. We want to hear from you. Take care, stay safe, and thank you for listening.